All right, so what's the narrator's name? No, it's not. It's not. What's his fake name? What's his name in the Brotherhood? Okay, uh, so here's our choice. We still have um, Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking to do, and we could. Um, and I brought it. Um, and that would be, it's a discussion section, that would be a thing to do. Um, or we could um, talk about Invisible Man. We'll have one more lecture on Invisible Man, or um, session in lecture on Invisible Man on Monday. Um, but we could have discussion today on that. Um, and at some point, I mean, I don't know. We should do Out of the Cradle, honestly, rocking. But uh, it's the snow. The snow screwed things up. Um, so what do you guys want to do? What do you want to talk about? I'll do the poem. OK. <laughs> All right, so the vote is 1-0 for the poem. So I guess that's what we will do. Um, because it's like a caucus rather than an open primary, right? <laughs> OK. So. Um, just these are if you don't have it this this is exactly what I gave out um, on Monday so uh, and you should be taking two sheets you need two sheets it all looks so different from this perspective Okay, but in the meantime, you're reading Invisible Man furiously, right? And you think it's totally great. Because it's totally great. Okay, just, you know, I wanted you to know that. <laughs> sometimes you just have to, even though it's an English class, sometimes you have to, um, there are facts that people need to know, like names and dates and authors and what's totally great. So, Invisible Man is one of those things that's totally great. Um, all right. Uh, I am trying hard to rein myself in from saying any more about anything more about Invisible Man since the vote was unanimous, really, uh, to do Whitman. Um, but I guess the one thing that I will say is just something, um, a general thing to say, is that it may feel to you, I hope it does feel to you, that Invisible Man um, is more urgently connected with um, your own um, whole social or political or um, general experience of um, living in this country at this time in the context that feels live um, in Invisible Man. That is what is going on in Invisible Man. Um, even though it's set, um, probably, when do you guys think it's set? It's not clear. It's intentionally not clear. But what would your, but you can, you can peg it to a decade or so, I think. I thought it was like 1910 or something like that. No, so it's, it's um, well after that. Uh, yeah, so it's published in 1951. Um, and he'd been working on it, if you read the um, preface, uh, which, again, um, I urge you to, even if you read it afterwards. Um, but he'd been working on it, um, I guess it, it was technically published in 1952. He'd been working on it first as a story. Um, Battle Royal came out as an independent story um, beforehand in 1947. 
And what he says is he started writing it after he gave up um, writing a story which was set in World War II. Um, so it's a post-World War II novel, but it's maybe not so clear how much time... This is always a question of first-person narrative. It's a question that you can um, ask, that you should ask, about the Aspirin Papers. Um, it's a question that gets answered at the end of Jane Eyre. Um, what is the um, difference in time? What's the gap of time between the um, telling of the narrative, that is, when the narrator is telling the narrative that she's telling, which we think of as a kind of ideal time. We don't think, oh, it took Jane Eyre probably about 23 months to write out um, her story. So she's almost two years older at the end of Jane of writing Jane Eyre than she is at the beginning of Jane Eyre. You think of a narrator, this is part of what we what first person narratives, the strange interface with our world, is unless there's any other reason to think that you don't put into the imaginary time um, that passes when thinking about narrative the time that it takes for the narrator to tell the story. You don't think, in order to write Jane Eyre, even if you wrote a thousand words a day, which is a lot of writing, it would take such and such amount of time to write that so that such and such amount of time has elapsed between her starting writing it and her finishing writing it. Um, we just think of it as there is a moment that she tells this story. Um, there's a moment that she tells it whole, and she's not getting older as she tells it. Um, and that, again, I think this goes without saying, which is why it's worth saying it, because we know it without ever thinking about it. Um, occasionally, people will say, um, there's actually a great Tom Jones story. Do people know who he is? Um, short story writer. Um, most famous for a story called The Pugilist at Rest, um, which is a Vietnam, Vietnam story. He had fought in Vietnam. Um, and the Pugilist at Rest is the name of a famous um, Roman sculpture, which um, it's, a, it's a modern name, but it seems pretty clear that what we're seeing is a boxer who'd been, who is totally beaten up. He's got cauliflower ears. He's totally beaten up in um, a, um, some kind of entertaining fight, as in the Roman circuses. Taylor, you're a classics major, is that right? Do you know that sculpture? Okay, well, sorry? I don't do art Well, one day you will, because classics is a whole, right? Um, okay, anyhow, it's an amazing sculpture. So Tom Jones writes this story, The Pugilist of Rest, and the narrator is a Vietnam vet who thinks about um, that sculpture. He's kind of obsessed with it and thinks about his own experience in Vietnam. And at the end of the story, it's like a five or six-page story, but one of the shocking things at the end of the story is um, it turns out, the narrator says, that it took him like two years to write the story. The narrator says. It didn't take Tom Jones two years to write the story. The narrator says it did um, because he had such terrible um, PTSD and also subconcussive or concussive brain damage that he simply can't concentrate. And so the fact that you've just zipped through this story, it takes 20 minutes to read, and at the end you find out that it's taken him months and years to narrate it, 
not the author to write it, but the narrator to narrate it, to put all these sentences together. Um, that's a really interesting and shocking moment in that story. But it partly works because we don't think of time, the writer's time passing, as the writer writes. Um, we think of the narrator as writing the story that we read, even if he or she doesn't write it in their world. Um, but we don't think of that as anything but a moment in that world. So Jane Eyre, we know, she tells us, is 10 years older at the end of the novel than at the time that the novel pretty much ends, than at the time that she marries Rochester. 10 years have passed. Generally, though, we often don't know. We don't know how old the narrator is at the end of the Aspern papers. Um, we don't know how long ago how long he's had the picture of Jeffrey Aspern above his desk. Um, the same, I think, is true of Invisible Man. Um, that is, that you can make an argument for how much time has passed between the events in Invisible Man and um, when the opening um, moment where he says, I'm an invisible man, I get all this power from the monopolated light company, and so on. Um, we can guess how much time has passed, but it's a different world. Now he's living underground, um, literally underground. I should tell you, by the way, that one reason that he's living underground is that Ellison was um, obsessed with Dostoevsky. Um, he thought Dostoevsky was um, one of the um, greatest writers of all time, which is true. Um, and he is writing in the mode that Dostoevsky wrote, and he's particularly thinking, does anyone know of what he would be thinking of if the Invisible Man is living underground? Yeah. Isn't it the prisoner? Um, no. There, there is a Dostoevsky. I mean, that, I think it's relevant. There's a whole lot of Dostoevsky that's relevant. Um, but the key word here would be underground. So one of Dostoevsky's great novellas is a novella written in a voice that Ellison is thinking of, although not imitating, the voice is resonating in Invisible Man, the novella Notes from Underground. Um, and it begins somewhat similarly, with a somewhat similar shocking description of the narrator um, who's telling us the story, and he's not your average narrator. Um, so how much time passes, that's an issue, and an interesting one. Um, what's not clear is, and the, the major question that you would want to know is, is this pre-war or post-war that this is happening? Um, it's being told post-war. Um, it is um, being published post-war. Um, the war is um, very much in the fairly recent memory. Um, like um, much more recent than the Iraq War memory of the readership of Invisible Man when it comes out. Um, but it doesn't much seem to be referring to any military um, activities that the United States is undertaking. On the other hand, there are a whole lot of political references. One of them, just so you know, was a major riot that occurred in Harlem during the war. Um, so if you're halfway through the book, which I hope most of you by now are, you know there's a near riot halfway through the book. Um, that is in the, in the eviction um, uh, episode. 
um, when um, the narrator comes upon um, all the belongings of this very old couple who are being evicted um, on the street in front of their house. Um, and that becomes a turning point. Every, I mean, everything in the novel is a turning point for him, but that's um, the halfway turning point in the novel. And there's almost a riot then, but the riot is put down. Um, later, there actually is a riot. Um, and um, that's something that people would have remembered from the last decade, especially New York readers, where um, Ellison himself was living in New York, that New York readers would have recognized. Um, but that was during the war. Um, and um, so, so the question, pre-war, post-war, during the war, in a way unanswerable, but in a way something that is um, just present as a mysterious background um, to the book. Um, the war itself had all sorts of effects on... Um, on the relationships, on, on racial um, um, politics within the U.S. government, um, the integration of the armed forces, the semi-integration of the armed forces under Truman. Um, all these things are part of a background. Anyhow, these things are still live. Um, these are still issues. Um, they're um, part of our culture, whereas when we're reading Milton or Shakespeare, or even Henry James, or even Walt Whitman, that's not quite true. Um, I mean, in Walt Whitman, it's not quite true. In, um, in Milton or Shakespeare, I don't think it's true at all. But these are politically live issues. Um, but one thing to think of, and this will come up when we do Beckett as well, is that whatever kind of um, frenzied sense of um, inevitability that you get reading Invisible Man, that this is um, stuff that you can't and should not ignore, that these are issues, that these are um, social ferments that matter and that you are not exempt from no matter who you are if you are living in the United States in 2016, um, that these are still issues that are um, alive in the current political campaigns, as um, I mentioned um, in class yesterday, that versions of them, avatars of them, are alive in the current um, political campaigns. One thing that you can do is understand that that was true for Milton's readers in Paradise Lost. That is, that Paradise Lost struck his readers as being as politically germane and politically upsetting, I mean, I, I hope you find Invisible Man upsetting, um, as politically germane, as politically upsetting, or at least agitating, um, at least um, something that, that, that was electrifying in various ways, as we might find something like <laughs> Invisible Man. It's not, it's very easy to think, and in one sense, I hope you do think this, it's very easy to think um, this is more than literature. This is, we've been reading a lot of literature and have been talking about it in aesthetic terms, but to talk about literature in aesthetic terms is just to admire how white optic white is or how beautiful the colors of paint are. Um, but here in Invisible Man, your response can't be merely aesthetic. And I hope you feel that way. Um, but what I would want to urge you 
to feel as well is that that's pretty much true, more or less true, sometimes more, sometimes less, but nevertheless pretty much true of a whole lot of what we've read. Um, King Lear was politically, in ways that we haven't talked about, partly because we can't um, recover them emotionally, and it doesn't matter that we can't recover them emotionally, probably, but King Lear was politically um, electrifying and politically agitating um, to its audience in 1605. It wasn't just, oh, an old man, this is very sad. It's um, about issues that were very, very live and powerful issues back then. Paradise Lost, same deal. Whitman, the same thing. Um, Out of the Cradle, Endlessly Rocking won't give it to you alone, but it actually matters in ways that, um, that won't be obvious to you if this is the only Whitman you know, that the two birds are from Alabama. Um, Whitman, a couple of years later, after writing that poem, um, he was a nurse in the Civil War. Um, he ministered and comforted Union soldiers in the Civil War. He, was, um, he held them as they died. He was very deeply involved in all the carnage of the Civil War, not responsible for it, attempting to... Um, to temper and modify it, but he was there. He was on the scene. Um, he was he was um, um, really committed to the um, cause of emancipation. It mattered to him, and so the fact that those mockingbirds come from Alabama—that's not entirely um, just geography. Alabama is rivers and mountains away, and it matters that it is. Um, so that is there in even in Out of the Cradle, Endlessly Rocking. Um, Henry James, do people know about his brother? So Henry James had um, was one of five children. Um, I mentioned one of his brothers before, William James, who's the great psychologist. Um, and the joke about them was, although you won't quite see this from the Aspirin papers, but the joke about them, which is not untrue, is that Henry James was the novelist who wrote like a psychologist, and William James was the psychologist who wrote like a novelist. And it's true. If you read William James's um, Principles of Psychology, which is a fantastically great two-volume work, that's where the, the phrase stream of thought comes from, which later then was used, um, was, was, was transmuted into stream of consciousness. Um, that um, um, phrase comes from the principles of psychology, and it's, it's a page turner. Um, it really is. It's, it's an amazing book. They, um, the Jameses, William and Henry, were the two oldest James brothers. Um, their sister, Alice James, was their intellectual equal, an amazing woman, um, who we now only, what she wrote was a diary and letters. And her diary is a fantastic piece of work, as are her letters. But if you ever get um, a hankering to read something really amazing, read the diary of Alice James. It's not that long. It's a couple hundred pages. She died of breast cancer. Um, in her early 40s, and the end of her diary when she's suffering and dying is quite astonishing, quite an amazing piece of work. 
Um, their younger brothers, um, Henry James wanted to but couldn't fight in the Civil War because of some injury that he had undergone. Alice James, um, who was in her early 20s during the Civil War, um, was part of um, a lot of New England um, um, back... Um, um, a lot of New England support, part of support efforts and relief efforts for the Union soldiers in the Civil War. Do people know who Robert Gould Shaw is? So on the Boston Commons, there's a monument to him. If you've seen the movie Glory, you actually do know who he is. Um, but you haven't seen the movie Glory. You should see Glory. It's a good movie. Um, so towards the end of the Civil War, um, the Union established at the behest of some um, black people, including emancipated black people, an all-black regiment. Um, and when I say all-black, I don't mean all-black because the officers were white. Um, but all the men were black. Um, that is, all the non-officers. Um, and Robert Gould Shaw, who is a very, very strong um, emancipationist, he was the um, commander of the regiment. And um, the movie Glory is about Shaw's regiment, Colonel Shaw's regiment. Shaw was killed in an attack on a fort, uh, that the regiment undertook in an attack on a fort in North Carolina, uh, excuse me, in South Carolina. Um, the Confederates that they attacked and who defeated them in their last engagement um, were so angry that the Union was using black soldiers that they committed war crimes against them. Um, that is, they didn't give them the um, what the laws of war require you to give enemy soldiers whom you've captured. Um, and they committed war crimes both against the men and against the officers. And a lot of them were killed, as I say, including Shaw. Um, the movie Glory is about that. And um, there were, if I recall correctly, the three whites in the regiment, the three white officers, were Shaw plus two NCOs, two non-commissioned officers, which you know means either corporals or sergeants. Um, one of them was Henry James's younger brother. Um, who survived but was very badly injured. Um, so this really fantastic um, story, this really fantastic um, um, historical fact, which was um, which is monumentalized on the Boston Common. You can see that St. Gaudens has this great, great right across from the State House. If you go up Beacon Street, um, St. Gaudens has a monument to that regiment. Um, yeah. Is this the low relief? Yes, so you do know it, yeah. 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 Um, so one of the people fighting there um, and committed to um, this extremely early but very serious attempt to integrate um, the U.S. Army, the United States Army, which was a Union Army, was Henry James's younger brother. So the point is that, that we read these older texts as... Um, not it, from a more aesthetic point of view, whether rightly or wrongly, we read them from a more aesthetic point of view than we read Invisible Man. Invisible Man aesthetically is as powerful as any American novel of the 20th century, um, but it's also important to see that things that are aesthetically powerful, um, there are other aspects to them, and there are almost always other aspects to them, and that um, even if we lose 
the sense of that, those other kinds of power by seeing what those other kinds of power look like in novels that are about issues that are still live, still powerful for us. Um, one of the things we can do is at least understand, even if we can't feel it, we can at least understand that Paradise Lost had a similar effect on its audience, was intended to have a similar effect, came out of something like the same intention as Invisible Man comes out of. Um, this will be true for Waiting for Godot also. How many people have ever read it? Um, so one thing to um, think about and consider um, is the question of invisibility in Waiting for Godot. That is, who's invisible and why in Waiting for Godot. Waiting for Godot is very much a World War II play. Um, Samuel Beckett was um, part of the resistance in France and um, came extraordinarily close to being captured and tortured and executed by the Nazis. Um, and um, Waiting for Godot, like Invisible Man, feels timeless. It doesn't feel like you know whether there's a war going on or not um, in Waiting for Godot. But you certainly don't feel that there isn't. Um, you don't feel like, oh yes, this isn't a peaceful time and it's just theater of the absurd. Um, that's not what it is. And so that's um, a more general thing, since we're not going to talk about Invisible Man today. Obviously, I'm not even going to mention it. But um, that's a more general um, thing to um, get from Invisible Man, what it means to um, have really passionate reasons, whole life reasons, whole society reasons for committing yourself to writing a novel like this or a play like Waiting for Godot or an epic like Paradise Lost. Um, they're, they're, these things are serious on all cylinders and not only on a purely literary cylinder. Um, Rebecca, do you want to say something? Oh, sorry, I thought your hand was up. No, that's fine. Okay. All right, so back to Out of the Cradle, Endlessly Rocking. Um, and so um, let's look at the idea of order at Key West um, and then get back to Out of the Cradle, Endlessly Rocking. So the idea of order at Key West is this poem by Wallace Stevens, um, who also had um, a really interesting relationship to World War II. Um, that is, it's also in the background of his poems. Um, World War II occurs when he's in his 60s, um, but it's in the background there. Um, maybe not so much in this poem, but what is in the background of this poem is Whitman. Um, and um, what we find, I don't know if you guys read it yet, but what we'll do is just go through it once and quickly and without pausing on it. Um, just so you get a sense of the atmosphere here. Um, Key West, do people know where Key West is? Sorry? It's in Florida, yes. It's the, um, the southernmost inhabited part of the continental U.S., I believe. I think it's um, south of Brownsville, Texas. Um, Hawaii is south of Key West, but in the continental U U.S., it's, if you go down the Florida Keys, um, it's as far as you can go. And Stevens used to go there in the summers. Um, and um, at Key West, he had a friend, at least the fiction of the poem is he had a friend. We don't find out that the friend is with him, is the other person in the we 
um, of the opening of the poem till the very end. Um, the friend is named Ramon Fernandez. Ramon Fernandez was a real person whom Stevens knew about, but who was who I, who, whom he never met. Um, he Stevens said. No, I just um, invented that name here. It's an accident that it's the name of this real person. Um, it may or may not be an accident, um, but at any rate, it doesn't. It doesn't matter for um, a first or even for a first ten readings of the poem. Um, but uh, he and Ramon Fernandez, at least the Ramon Fernandez in the poem, are walking together by the sea, and they hear a woman singing um, as they walk. And now he, Stephen, says she sang beyond the genius of the sea. That is, whatever she sang was more than what the spirit of the sea was singing. Genius there means spirit. She sang beyond the genius of the sea. The water never formed to mind or voice. So the sea was just the sea. It didn't become mind or voice. The water was like a body, holy body, fluttering its empty sleeves. And yet, its mimic motion made constant cry. So the water is only water, and yet it seems to mimic something with a mind, with a soul, something singing, made constant cry. And then he revises that a little bit, caused constantly a cry that was not ours, although we understood, inhuman, of the veritable ocean. So it's just an ocean, but it makes a cry, a sound that isn't human, but is the cry of the ocean. Even though the ocean doesn't cry, it seems to cry, and the cry it seems to utter is not a human cry, but the cry of the ocean. The sea was not a mask. It was right there. No more was she. The song and water were not medleyed sound. The sounds weren't put together, even if what she sang was what she heard. So somehow she's singing the song of the sea, even if what she sang was what she heard, since what she sang was uttered word by word. She turns the sound of the sea into words. Since what she sang was uttered word by word, it may be that in all her phrases stirred the grinding water and the gasping wind. But it was she and not the sea we heard, for she was the maker of the song she sang. Maker, when a poet uses the word maker, that's always a crucial word. There are certain crucial words that when poets use them, they matter. Maker is one of them because maker is the definition, is, the, is what the Greek word poet actually means. Um, maker is the literal translation of poetes, which is the Greek word um, that we usually translate as poet. A poet is a maker. Um, one of the famous early uh, modern elegies for the dead poets is called, really wonderfully, the lament for makers. Poets are makers. So to say she was the maker of the song she sang, just whenever you read a poem, if you see the word maker, underline it, just for the rest of your lives. Even if you're driving, pull over. You know, don't try to do it while you're driving. You'd get a ticket. But pull over and underline maker. Although you shouldn't be reading while you're driving either, I guess. Um, if you're listening on Audible and you hear the word maker and it's a poem, just pull over. All right? It's important. Um, 
for she was the maker of the song she sang. The ever-hooded, tragic, gestured sea was merely a place by which she walked to sing. Whose spirit is this, we said? So the we there is Stevens and Ramon Fernandez. Whose spirit is this, we said? Because we knew it was the spirit that we sought and knew that we should ask this often as she sang. So she's the spirit of whom? Of the ocean? Of us? Of the world? If it was only the dark voice of the sea, and that's where he's thinking of, of Whitman, if it was only the dark voice of the sea that rose, or even colored by many waves, if it was only the outer voice of sky and cloud, of the sunken coral, water-walled, however clear it would have been, deep air, the heaving speech of air, a summer sound repeated in a summer without end and sound alone. So if that's all it was, it would have been air, amazing air maybe, but only air, a summer sound repeated in a summer without end and sound alone. But it was more than that, more even than her voice and ours among the meaningless plungings of water and the wind. Theatrical distances, bronze shadows heaped on high horizons, mountainous atmospheres of sky and sea. It was more than all of that, that kind of theatrical sense of things here. Stevens is probably getting the word heaped there. It's a great word from Melville. Um, there's an amazing moment where Ahab says of the white whale. Um, how many people have read Moby Dick, by the way? So read it. Um, do that for Monday, too. Just a little bit extra. Um, Ahab, the captain who goes hunting the white whale, um, has an amazing line where he says, he heaps me, he tasks me. Quite an amazing verb, he heaps me. And that's probably what Stevens is thinking of. The reason I actually ask him about Moby Dick is that... Um, Probably the single greatest. I don't know. They're all they're all great. It's ridiculous what a great novel that is too. Um, but perhaps the single greatest um, chapter in Moby Dick is the chapter called "The Whiteness of the Whale," and um, that's a racialized whiteness for Melville. Um, this is you may recall that one of the epigraphs for Invisible Man is from Melville, not from Moby Dick, but from the story of Benita Serino, which is also a story about slavery and race. Um, but the whiteness of the whale, that's not a good whiteness, the whiteness of the whale. It's something that Ellison is thinking of in the little sermon in, again, this is in the um, beginning of Invisible Man, the little sermon on the blackness of blackness. Um, he wants that to echo the whiteness of the whale in Moby Dick. The way he does it is an <coughs> echo of Melville. Um, so Melville and Stevens and Whitman and Ellison um, connections, as the PBS series has it. Um, so heaped on high horizons, mountainous atmospheres of sky and sea. It was her voice. So here is a story about poetry. It was her voice that made the sky acutest at its vanishing. She measured to the hour its solitude. So the poem, the song that she sings, is what makes the sky 
more intense than it would otherwise be. She measured to the hour its solitude. She was the single artificer of the world in which she sang, and when she sang the sea, whatever self it had became the self that was her song, for she was the maker. Then we, as we beheld her striding there alone, knew that there never was a world for her except the one she sang and singing made. Now he turns to Ramon Fernandez. Fernandez, tell me if you know why when the singing ended and we turned toward the town, tell why the glassy lights, the lights in the fishing boats at anchor there as the night descended, tilting in the air, mastered the night and portioned out the sea, fixing emblazoned zones and fiery poles, arranging, deepening, enchanting night. So the human lights make the night, they arrange the night, they deepen it, they enchant it. Oh, blessed rage for order, pale Ramon, the maker's rage to order words of the sea, to put them into order, to make poems out of them, to make words of the sea into poems. Words of the fragrant portals dimly starred and of ourselves and of our origins in ghostlier demarcations, keener sounds. So that's a description of what poetry is. It's the ordering of words of the sea. But we know what the word of the sea is from Whitman. Or if we don't, let's remind ourselves. So we got to um, around line 75 as Whitman is listening to the mockingbird who is all alone and he's translating, he's ordering words of the bird. He's translating what the bird says just as Stevens sees the woman in the idea of order Key West translating the words of the sea. Soothe, soothe, soothe. Close on its wave soothes the wave behind. So each wave soothes the wave that has already broken. And again, another behind embracing and lapping. Everyone close, says the bird, but my love soothes not me, not me. Low hangs the moon, it rose late, it is lagging. Oh, I think it is heavy with love, with love. Oh, madly the sea pushes upon the land with love, with love. Oh, night. I do not see my love fluttering out among the breakers. Do I not see my love fluttering out among the breakers? What is that little black thing I see there in the white? Again, do you want to see that at all? Or do you want to refuse to see that at all as an allegory or a symbol or an illusion or a touching upon slavery? If you saw that in Invisible Man, you would certainly underline it, right? The little black thing I see there in the white. 
these two mockingbirds that have come from Alabama. Now one is lost and dead, and the other is looking and hoping to see her against that background. Loud, 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 loud I call to you, my love. High and clear I shoot my voice over the waves. Surely you must know who is here, is here. You must know who I am, my love. Low-hanging moon, what is that dusky spot in your brown-yellow? Oh, is it the shape of my mate? Oh, is it the shape, the shape of my mate? Oh, moon, do not keep me. Do not keep her from me any longer. Land, land, oh, land. Whichever way I turn, oh, think you could give me my mate back again if you only would. For I am almost sure I see her dimly, whichever way I look. Oh, rising stars, perhaps the one I want so much will rise, will rise with some of you. Oh, throat, oh, trembling throat, sound clearer through the atmosphere, pierce the woods, the earth, somewhere listening to catch you must be the one I want. Shake out carols, solitary here, the night's carols, carols of lonesome love, death's carols. Carols under that lagging, yellow, waning moon. Oh, under that moon where she droops almost down into the sea. Oh, reckless, despairing carols. But soft, sing low, soft. Let me just murmur. And do you wait a moment, you husky noise sea? For somewhere, I believe I heard my mate responding to me so faint, I must be still, be still to listen. But not altogether still, for then she might not come immediately to me. Hither, my love, here I am, here. With this just sustained note, I announce myself to you. This gentle call is for you, my love, for you. Do not be decoyed elsewhere. That is the whistle of the wind. It is not my voice. That is the fluttering, the fluttering of the spray. Those are the shadows of leaves. Oh, darkness, oh, in vain. Oh, I am very sick and sorrowful. Oh, brown halo in the sky near the moon, drooping upon the sea. Oh, troubled reflection in the sea, oh, throat, oh, throbbing heart, and I singing uselessly, uselessly all the night. Oh, past, oh, happy life, oh, songs of joy in the air, in the woods, over fields. And then five times the word loved, 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 loved. But my mate no more, no more with me, we two together no more. So that's Whitman translating the bird's song, which means, to some extent, imputing those words to the bird, but also recognizing that the bird is mourning, that the bird is alone, that it keeps singing, wanting its mate to come back, but she's gone. And then he says, the aria sinking, all else continuing, the stars shining. So the bird stops singing. All else continuing, the stars shining, the winds blowing, the notes of the birds, of the bird, continuous echoing. With angry moans, the fierce old mother incessantly moaning. So who is that mother? Ladder? It is the sea, yes. 
So this whole time, here is the sea, the fierce old mother incessantly moaning on the sands of Pomonok's shore, gray and rustling, the yellow half-moon enlarged, sagging down, drooping, the face of the sea almost touching. That is, the moon is almost touching the face of the sea. The boy ecstatic. So the boy is himself. And now he's ecstatic. Do people know or can you guess etymologically what the word ecstatic means? Everyone knows what it means as a meaning, like, ooh, I'm so happy. Um, but can you figure it out etymologically? Yeah. Yes, standing outside of yourself. We, it survives in our, in our phrase, beside yourself. Like, I'm beside myself with joy. It's you've been taken out of yourself. You're no longer yourself, but outside. So the boy, <coughs> ecstatic. And then this is the part that's like the Dickinson poem. I started early, took my dog. The, the boy ecstatic with his bare feet, the waves with his hair, the atmosphere dallying. The love in the heart long pent, now loose, now at last tumultuously bursting. The areas meaning the ears, the soul, swiftly depositing the strange tears down the cheeks coursing. So he's weeping. The colloquy there, the trio. So who's the trio? Yeah. The trio, each uttering the undertone, the savage old mother incessantly crying to the boy's souls, questions sullenly timing some drowned secret hissing to the outsetting bard. So outsetting means it's the beginning. He's setting out on his life as a bard, as a poet. Bard there means singer or poet. Demon or bird, said the boy's soul, is it indeed toward your mate you sing, or is it really to me? For I, that was a child, so now the boy's soul is saying, I was a child. For I that was a child, my tongue's you sleeping, now I have heard you, now in a moment I know what I am for, I awake, and already a thousand singers, a thousand songs, clearer and louder and more sorrowful than yours, a thousand warbling echoes have started to life within me, never to die. So hearing the bird song and translating the bird song now becomes for the boy what makes him a poet. And it's all great. Oh, you singer, solitary, singing by yourself, projecting me. Oh, solitary, me listening. Nevermore shall I cease perpetuating you. Nevermore shall I escape. Nevermore the reverberations. Nevermore the cries of unsatisfied love be absent from me. Never again leave me to, the, to be the peaceful child I was before. What there in the night by the sea under the yellow and sagging moon the messenger there aroused. The fire, the sweet hell within, the unknown want, the destiny of me. Oh, give me the clue. It lurks in the night here somewhere. Oh, if I'm ha to have so much, let me have more. So that's all the beginning of being a poet. And then he hears the sea answer. A word, for I will conquer it. The word final, superior to all. What word will the poet speak? The poet wants to put everything into a single word. Subtle, sent up. What is it? I listen. Are you whispering it? And have you been all the time you see waves? Is it from your liquid rims and wet sands? Again, if you're 
feeling and repressing a possible sexual um, resonance in these words, don't repress it. They're there. It's like my shoe overflowing with pearl in Dickinson. She got it, and it is sexual. And it's um, important that it is. Where two, answering the sea, delaying not, hurrying not, whispered me through the night and very plainly before daybreak, lisped to me the low and delicious word, death. And again, not loved, 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 but again, death, 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 hissing melodious, neither like the bird nor like my aroused child's heart, but edging near as privately for me rustling at my feet. He's being seduced by death, creeping then steadily up to my ears, past my simple bodice, and up to my ears and laving me softly all over death, 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 death which I do not forget, but fuse the song of my dusky demon and brother that he sang to me in the moonlight in Pomonix's gray beach with the thousand responsive songs at random, my own songs awaked from that hour, and with them the key, the word up from the waves, the word of the sweetest song in all songs, the song, that strong and delicious word, which creeping to my feet, or like some old crone rocking the cradle swathed in sweet garments, Bending aside, the sea whispered me. So, strange, mysterious, amazing, haunting, inevitable poem, um, which should keep whispering to you, I hope. All right, see you guys Monday. Finish Invisible Man and Moby Dick if you get a chance. If you don't, I'll understand. Thanks.